In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Happy uh, Columbus Day, everybody, or Indigenous Peoples Day. I'm not really sure what it is right now. I know it is a holiday here in in Puerto Rico. And uh, for the U.S. bond market, it was also closed for the day. But the stock market was open. And I will talk about uh, what happened in the markets today. But before I actually get into the podcast, I want to talk again about the liking of the videos, because I set out a challenge on my last podcast. I wanted to set a record for uh, likes, because up until a few podcasts ago, I never really asked anybody to like or uh, my video or comment on my videos or subscribe to my channel. People pretty much did that on their own. But it's clear that I need to encourage you guys, because I was below average. I was reading that uh, the average uh, was 4% likes, and I was in the threes. And, you know, the podcast that I did, uh, my second to last podcast from now, that got 14,000 likes, which I thought was a lot of likes. But the problem is that podcast now has 414,000 YouTube views. And that makes it my, I think, third or fourth most watched regular podcast. But my like percentage dropped back down to about three and a half percent. So I was back below average, which I don't like being below average. Now, on the podcast I did on on uh, Friday, that one, you guys, at least some of you came through. I've got 12,000 likes on that podcast, and there are 116,000 views. 
So we've got better than 10%, which puts me way above average. But I still don't understand what's going on with the other 90% of you guys who watch this video. I have 116,000 views and 104,000 of you guys or gals did not like the video. Now, maybe you liked it, but you didn't click the like. And that means you're a slacker. And so we need to get more likes. I am shooting for 100%. I mean, I want to get close to that, but there's no reason why everybody who is watching this video can't hit that like button. I mean, what is the big deal, right? It doesn't cost anything. Uh, so I'm expecting to break this record. Uh, you slackers who didn't like the last video, you guys have a shot now at, at, at making up for that by liking this one. If you can't figure out how to do it, I mean, I, I'm sure my audience is smart enough to figure out how to you know, hit the like button on a YouTube channel. I mean, I, I wasn't smart enough to ask you guys to do that for years and years, and now I'm, I'm trying to you know, make up for lost time. So uh, make sure and like this video. Uh, and if you're not subscribing to my YouTube channel, you know, one guy posted on the comments that he wasn't even listening on YouTube. He was listening on my, maybe iTunes, but he went over to YouTube just so he could like it. Now, that's, that's, that's a team spirit. That's a good effort on his part. He wasn't even on YouTube, yet he still liked the video. So those of you who are watching on YouTube, you got to like uh, the video. And you can comment, too. And by the way, I do read the comments. I don't read them all because I don't have that much time. But I scan through them, and I reply to some of them. Uh, so put a comment on there. The shorter, the better. You know, sometimes people think if they leave a really long comment, it might attract my attention. No, it actually, I, I, I have to skip those because I don't have the time. So short and sweet, you know, like a tweet. Try to compose your thoughts into a concise comment. But if you just want to say, hey, good job or whatever, you know, the more comments that are there, uh, the better. And if you disagree with something I say, you know, if you could do it short, if you think I, I, I got something wrong, point it out because I might engage you there. I might try to defend myself. Or if I think you're right, I'll acknowledge, hey, thanks for correcting me. Because sometimes I do make mistakes on the podcast. I get something wrong. And I like it if somebody points it out because then I can, I can try to correct it on a, on a later podcast or try to call attention to it uh, in, in the chats. But anyway, I want to break the 14,000 for sure from you know, a couple of podcasts ago. But let's get higher. I mean, 10% is good, but it's not good enough. We can do better than that. Anyway, getting into today's podcast. So the big news that that occurred uh, between the Friday podcast and this Monday podcast are the the tragic events that took place in Israel uh, over the weekend. Uh, but if you look at the muted reaction in the markets, you would think that this is a non-event. Right? There's so much complacency out there. Uh, yeah, the, the S&P futures Sunday night when I first watched them, they were down, uh, Dow Futures down, maybe about 200 points, but we closed up close to 200 points. By the way, we, were, we had a big up day on, on Friday. I was doing the podcast in the morning early, and the Dow was still in the red by about 50 points, uh, you know, recovering its losses from down 200 on the big spike in yields following the non-farm payroll report. And I'm going to have more about that again later in this podcast. But we ended up with a 300-plus point rally. In, in the stock market. So the stock market has been shrugging off uh, the backup in yields, and now it's shrugged off uh, war uh, in the Middle East, which I think is a big deal. Oil prices too, which at one point were up almost $5 a barrel last night, which that 
in and of itself, I don't think was a big enough move, especially since oil prices had retreated quite a bit. They got up to $95. Uh, and now, you know, in less than two weeks, they had, you know, pulled back, you know, just to 80, 82 or something like that. So we had a very big retracement in a short period of time. So given where oil was, I would have expected an even bigger move up. And we didn't get that. In fact, we were not even up two bucks by the close of oil trading in the U.S. We went out at 84.62 a barrel. I don't know if they've settled it yet, but that's what I'm looking at. Uh, but not a big reaction. Gold had a, had, a, had a better reaction. Actually, gold was up about 30 bucks, closed on the high of the day. And gold actually had a very significant day on Friday. Remember, I mentioned that on the podcast, so I thought it looked like there could have been a reversal day for gold, uh, but you know it was still early in the day, and so I didn't know. Uh, but now that I, you know, now that that day is over, gold and silver both put in a one-day reversal, and and what that is is when you take out the low from the prior day, and then you not only take out the high from the prior day but you close above that high. So they call it an outside reversal. And it usually signifies the end of a particular trend. And so in the case of gold and silver, the trend that was ending was the downtrend. So we sold off in the morning on the initial spike up in in yields. Then uh, we had a reversal. And after we took out the Thursday low, we not only took out the Thursday high, but we closed above the Thursday high. And I think that we've probably seen the lows now for uh, gold and silver, especially given what is going on now in the Middle East, which is very bullish uh, for gold and silver and oil. I mean, I think oil should have made a much bigger move uh, than what we've already seen. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit, though, about this situation and how, you know, the markets are just completely missing the the heightened risks that come along with what's going on uh, with Israel uh, and um, and the Palestinians in the, in the Gaza Strip and and which may in fact involve Iran but the markets are are not contemplating what's actually happening here and it reminds me of what happened with um, um, Putin and his invasion of um, uh, of the Ukraine. Because if you remember when that first happened, and it's a while ago, if you don't really remember, because it was February of 2022 when that war began. In four months, it's going to be two years since the start. And if you remember, at the beginning, all of the so-called experts, all the big people out there, we're saying this was going to be over quickly because Putin was going to cave, right? He was going to fold like a cheap lawn chair because, you know, the entire world uh, was united against Putin. We had these sanctions, economic sanctions against Russia. Uh, uh, Biden was bragging about how the ruble was collapsing. Uh, the Russian economy was in shambles. And soon, you know, this would be victory for Ukraine and People just assumed, yeah, this is no big deal. It's going to be over quickly. What was I saying? Go back and re-listen to those podcasts. I said at the time, no way. This is going to be a long, drawn-out deal. Uh, 
Putin is not going to just give up uh, on this. Uh, he is going to dig in his heels. I said this was going to you know, be like a Vietnam or something. It was just going to be a continuous, ongoing uh, situation. And once again, I was proven correct. Unfortunately, I mean, I wish I was wrong about that. I wish that this thing had ended quickly. But unfortunately, it didn't. And in fact, I just read that President Biden wants to propose another $100 billion in aid to the Ukraine. $100 billion. I mean, that's like a huge number. I don't know, that's 50% or something of the Ukrainian GDP. I mean, that is a ridiculous amount. I mean, that's probably almost as much as we've already spent. I think we've spent a little over $100 billion. So now we're going to double up uh, on the spending. And that pretty much guarantees that the war is going to last another year or two because it's going to take at least that long to spend all that money. But of course, not all the money is spent, right? A lot of it is skimmed off the top uh, by the corrupt politicians. And so they want to keep those money spigots flowing. And of course, the more money we put into this thing, the longer the, the war is going to go on. Because in many cases, maybe the war is about the money. They want to keep getting the money. And I, I've read that the average age now of the uh, Ukrainian soldiers uh, is in their in their 40s or something. I mean, that's, I mean, are, are all the young Ukrainians already dead? I mean, what's going on there that they got people in their 40s on the battlefield? You know, uh, that's kind of ridiculous uh, when 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 you've got people of that age, uh, when you're, you know, you're really scraping the bottom of, the, of the, your barrel to get your male population. I mean, maybe there's some guys in their 50s, you know, who are who are fighting in this in this war. Uh, and, and, and so but this extra 100 million, 100 billion, excuse me, of money we don't have, right? Biden is like, oh, let's just send him an extra 100 billion. Well, where are we going to get it? We're broke. We have a $2 trillion plus deficit. That's why the bonds are collapsing, yields are rising. And we want to borrow another 100 billion to, to send it over to the Ukraine to perpetuate that war. They don't even think about it. But this has the potential of being a similar situation where we're now going to be spending a bunch of money on military aid uh, for, for Israel, but also what's going to be happening in the Middle East could be even more disruptive potentially to the oil market than what happened in, in, in Russia with the Ukraine. I'm going to talk more about that uh, on the other side of this break, so stick around. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code GOLD 
gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. Talking about the terrorist attack on Israel and the fact that I believe the markets are underestimating the potential impact here. And I'm, you know, I'm focusing in on this from an economic and a financial perspective. I mean, not uh, just a, a, a human perspective uh, about the, the loss of life and, you know, the tragedy. Uh, and, and, and as a Jew, I mean, I have a particular a fondness for, for Israel and I want Israel to prosper. And, you know, and so th- th- this hits home uh, when, when there's a terrorist attack uh, on Israel. But I... You know, that's not what the purpose of this podcast is. I want to get into it. And it's not like I'm callous or, you know, don't have any regard. About 900 people, I think, uh, civilians were, were killed already. On, on, on Israelis were killed. And I think a couple of thousand were injured. So some of those may, in fact, end up dying. I'm not sure how many hostages that they, they took. Uh, but they have hostages, and they're actually threatening to kill them on, uh, on television or like on video, not television anymore, but I put it up on social media. Uh, and so, you know, th- this is going to snowball. I mean, this is like September 11th for Israel. In fact, if you think about it on a percentage, right, what percentage of their population died as a result of this, it's bigger than, um, than, than 9-11 from that perspective. And so what did America do as a result of 9-11? We didn't just, you know, shrug it off. No, we had the war on terror, right? We had all sorts of stuff that happened. And then we went into Iraq, where we got Saddam Hussein, even though he had nothing to do with 9-11, we still ended up having a war against Iraq anyway. So it wasn't like it just ended, right? It was the beginning of a lot of things that happened. And so I, I think this is the beginning of a bad situation, unfortunately. And, you know, we were very close to a good situation uh, because uh, they had been negotiating a a treaty between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And that would have been a very promising uh, situation to bring uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia closer together. Uh, That would have been good for Israel. Uh, And now, I mean, that's probably completely derailed. And that's probably not by accident because, you know, the Iranians were not happy about Israel and Saudi Arabia getting closer together. And there probably were some Saudis uh, that, that, that didn't want that either. But now that you've got uh, Israel retaliating, and now, of course, they're, they're killing Palestinians, and you know, uh, civilian Palestinians are, of course, going to die. I mean, if they're trying to get Hamas, they're trying to get the leaders. I mean, it's such a densely populated area there in that Gaza Strip. I mean, you know, there's going to be civilian casualties. That's not going to go over well. In, in Saudi Arabia with a rank and file, right, who, who feel a, a, a kinship with the Palestinians. Uh, and you've already heard, you know, other uh, Arab countries, I think Qatar came out and, you know, hey, this is Israel's fault, right, because you've been mistreating these Palestinians. And so that sympathy is there. This is probably going to derail that. But also, if it turns out uh, that Iran uh, played a, a, a big role in this. Did they orchestrate this? Did they plan it? I mean, how much help did they give? You know, there's already articles being written. I mean, some intelligence is saying that, yes, you know, Iran probably was behind the whole thing. If that is, in fact, the case, well, then, you know, what's going to happen? I mean, what's Israel going to do? What's the United States going to do? I mean, I, I you know, 
Um, you know, because we're going to be backing them, whatever they do. Um, whether or not they could declare war on Iran or bot, you know, launch missiles over there. But none of this is going to be uh, pretty in the short run. It's all going to be problematic. It's going to destabilize the region. There already is a lot of tension there. But who knows what this is going to do to the oil market at a time where the U.S. has, what, like 12 days left in our strategic petroleum reserve? Uh, you know, this is not a good time to have uh, an oil embargo, right, when you've just blown through most of your strategic petroleum reserves trying to buy votes uh, for uh, the Democrats in the midterm. So we're particularly vulnerable. You've already got, um, you know, the, 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 the Arab, the, the OPEC nations, the oil exporting nations looking to de-dollarize, right? So the United States is already not that popular over there right now. Uh, the sanctions in, in Russia have backfired and they've driven... Uh, the Saudis closer to to Russia, actually, and China. Uh, but now, if this is going to happen, this is going to escalate those tensions. Uh, and so there's all sorts of negative things here. Right? I mean, look at the the uh, all the defense stocks. I mean, they were the biggest performers. I mean, there were some oil stocks that did well today, but the defense stocks uh, beat out the gold stocks. I mean, why are these defense stocks rallying? Because people know that that means they're going to sell more weapons. Right. So who's buying all these weapons and who's paying for it? I mean, maybe it's going to be Israel that's going to buy all the weapons. But where are they going to get the money? They'll get the money from us. But we, where are we going to get the money? We got to borrow it from the Chinese. Except the Chinese don't want to lend it. So we got to get it from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is going to print more money. In fact, maybe that's the reason that the market rallied today. Maybe it's not that they are underestimating how bad the problem is. Maybe they realize it's a bad problem and they realize that that's a good thing, right? Because, you know, bad news is good news. And if this is bad news, maybe it's good because it means we're going to get more QE or a return to QE. And at least we're not going to get any more rate hikes. Right now we've got war in the Middle East. Uh, so the Fed can't raise rates with all that uncertainty out there. Uh, and maybe they'll have to cut rates. But it's not really a function. This is what the markets still don't get. And I, I've, I've been trying to uh, hammer this point home in these podcasts. It's not just about the rate hikes. Even if the Fed is done hiking rates, it doesn't matter because the market is not done hiking rates. In fact, if the Fed is done hiking, then the market has even more work to do because the, the best thing for the long end was the Fed to be very vigilant on its inflation fight, right? The more hikes, the better, as far as the 30-year bond or even the 10-year bond is concerned, right? They want the Fed fighting inflation hard. But now, if the Fed is of the belief that it can stop fighting because, hey, look, long-term yields have already moved up, that means we can ease up. No, because if the Fed ease up, the long-term rates are gonna go up even more. It's not that the long-term rates have gone up because the Fed has been hiking. They've been going up because of higher inflation. That's what's been driving them up. And also the supply, the huge supply of treasuries. But the reason that it took as long as it did, which obviously wasn't that long, but the reason that people were buying long-term treasuries, right? people were buying the 10-year when it was three, three and a half, and they thought they were getting a great deal. Why did so many people want to go out long on the curve? Guys like Jeff Gunlock, right? He was telling people, yeah, buy the long end. Why were these bond guys 
excited about buying a 10-year treasury when it was yielding under 4%, when now they're close to 5 Why were they excited? Because they all expected the Fed to start cutting rates. Why? Because they believed that the rate hikes were going to cause a recession. And they believed that it was going to be the recession that was going to bring down inflation. Because, again, they don't understand where inflation comes from. They think it comes from economic growth. They think, right, they think it comes from a strong economy. They were wrong. Right? And they were also wrong to expect a weak economy would mean weak inflation. But because so many people assumed that the Fed was going to tip the economy into a recession, which was a good re- assumption to have made, I made the same assumption. So they weren't wrong about that. They were just they were right for the wrong reasons. But because everybody expected the economy to go to recession, they also expected the Fed to respond to that recession by cutting rates. They also expected the recession to cure the inflation problem because that's, after all, why the Fed was trying to cause a recession. Remember, we had, we had an overheated economy. We had to cool it off, right? We had to get rid of the inflation. And they expected that the economy would go down and then the Fed would cut rates, go back to QE, and that if you bought a 10-year treasury at a 3%, 3.5%, 4% yield, you'd be a big winner because you know, the Fed would go back to QE and that would drive bond prices up, the ones that you bought, and yields would go back down into the twos or into the ones, and you would have a huge gain. That's what everybody expected. Well, the reason that that trade is unraveling is because it's not happening. I mean, one thing that's not happening is the recession, right? The recession hasn't happened. You know, everybody's talking about 4 or 5% GDP growth. The big jobs numbers, like that we got on Friday, which again, you know, beneath the surface, it was another bad report uh, masquerading as a strong report. But those headlines, lots of jobs, GDP growth, the market has been surprised by this. And now they have to price this out. They've got to price out the rate cuts and the return to QE. And so bond prices are falling and yields are rising. But if the Fed takes that as a signal that it can back off on the inflation fight, then the bonds are going to get killed even more. Because now, okay, not only aren't we having a recession, the Fed isn't even hiking anymore, so this strong economy is going to get even stronger, and that means higher inflation. And also, the other dichotomy that we see now, which we've never seen before, is that the budget deficits are rising even though the economy is supposedly strengthening. Normally, it's the reverse. When the economy is getting strong, the budget deficits come down. That's because tax receipts go up, expenditures go down, it's self-correcting. But this is different. This expansion has expanding budget deficits, and one of the main reasons for that is the fact that interest rates are rising, and that means the cost of servicing the debt is rising. So we're at a situation where... A strong economy is resulting in even larger, not smaller budget deficits, which will put even more upward pressure on long-term interest rates than you would normally expect in a strong economy. So if the Fed says, okay, we're done, uh, then the bonds are really going to get killed. The only way that they can slow down the collapse would be to go back to QE, but even that would not work. It might work temporarily, but over a longer period of time, and I'm not talking years, I mean, maybe months, the bonds are going to reverse because the inflationary impact of a return to QE 
is going to be quickly realized, especially by the foreign exchange market and by the gold market, and that is going to bleed into the bond market. Anyway, I got one more commercial break, so stick around. We're coming right back. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash gold talking about the the impact that uh, the war in the middle east is going to have uh, on the markets on the economy look nothing good is going to come of this in the short run whether or not there's an ultimate solution here uh, for Israel uh, and, and peace in Palestine, who knows? I mean, th- 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 you know, my, my entire life uh, we have had uh, these problems reoccurring uh, in, in, in the Middle East. And so uh, I don't know that I'll live to see uh, a resolution, although I'm trying my hardest, you know, with my hyperbaric and uh, my uh, cryo and red light and all that stuff that I'm doing. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, but. The, the, everybody is underestimating the, the, the impact that we're going to see here. First of all, wars are expensive. They cost money. Uh, they come at the expense of, um, of civilian uh, uh, production to the extent that we have to divert uh, resources. Anybody has to divert resources to a war. Any Keynesian economist who tries to tell you that it's good because it boosts the GDP, again, they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, what good is the GDP if it's fighting a war, right? Uh, it's, it's all about raising living standards. It's about uh, supplying uh, consumers with more goods and services. And, and that's not what a war does. I mean, maybe you could argue in the long run, potentially, uh, if you defeat an enemy that would have undermined uh, the production of goods and services. And so it's uh, a, a short-term cost that you need to bear uh, to get the long-term benefits. But there is no short-term benefit economically right, of, 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 of fighting a war. Uh, it's going to be disruptive to supplies, to supply chains. I mean, and, you know, oil prices were already going to go up. Right? I was already bullish on oil before this happened, right? This just means I'm even more bullish than I was before. And if oil prices that were already going to go $100, $150 a barrel next year, if it was already going to happen without this situation, well, it's even more likely to happen with it. And in fact, the price could be even higher. Maybe it's 150 to 200 uh, where we end up uh, in, in 2024. And, you know, there's a good chance that that could be what tips the economy officially into recession, which means the budget deficits that are already huge are going to get even more enormous. You know, the national debt now is above. Uh, 33 and a half trillion. It was still below 
when I did the podcast on, on Friday. So we'll see if we can actually add an entire trillion in under one month. It's going to be close. I mean, it, it might based on looking at it now, it could take five to six weeks to add a trillion dollars. But that's going to be more than twice as fast as we added the trillion from 32 trillion to 33 trillion. The key is going to be how long will it take to go from 33 tri- from 34 trillion to 35 trillion? I mean, I bet we do that in in under a month, right? Especially if we tack on an extra 100 billion for good measure uh, to uh, to to the Ukraine. But all of this is going to weaken the economy, and I think it's already structurally weak. That jobs report that came out on Friday, right? And I, I, everybody was saying, oh yeah, this is great. All these jobs being created, right? 300 and what was it? 336,000 jobs. Well, what did I say on my Friday podcast before I even had a chance to look at it? I thought, well, you know, it's probably the same old, same old where we created a lot of part-time jobs. We created a lot of, you know, low paying service sector jobs, a lot of government jobs. And that's probably the strength, which is not real strength. It's just a big number. But I pointed out that a lot of these jobs that are being created are being created and they're going to people who, who don't want these jobs. I mean, they need the jobs, but they wish they didn't need them. But the only way they can pay the rent or pay for groceries or keep the lights on is if they get another job. And sure enough, I was right because I went back and over the weekend, I read some of the stories and one of the points from the job number from September is the record number of people, more Americans than ever before in the history of the country, have multiple jobs, two or more jobs. Right? People don't want two jobs. I mean, most people don't even want one job. I mean, they'd rather just be retired. They'd rather not have to work. But unfortunately, you got to work, right? You know, if you want there's other things you need. You got to you got to work. People people look forward to the weekends. Nobody says, "Thank God it's Monday," right? Why do people look forward to the weekends? Because they don't work. They work to get to the weekend, right? So you don't want your job in most cases. Now you know there are some people. I mean, I enjoy what I do for a living, and that and, and I'm glad about that. There are a lot of people who enjoy what they do for a living, but they're in the minority. I mean, it is good. I mean, if you could find something that you're passionate about and that you enjoy doing, then that's great. I mean, you're a huge winner in life. And and generally, you can make more money if you enjoy what you're doing, right? Because you're going to you're going to, you know, put more time into it and you'll, you know, you're not going to regret the time. But unfortunately, most Americans hate their jobs. Right? They, they, they wish they didn't have their job, right? That's why again, that's why people look forward to retiring when they can quit their job, right? In fact, what do people do when they win the lottery? What's the first thing they do? They quit their job. They can't wait to, to tell their boss off, right? You know, and quit their job, right? They don't get another job when they win the lottery. The problem is they win the lottery and then they blow all the money and then they have to go back to work again. But the point is people don't want these second jobs and they certainly don't want a third job. But why are they taking these jobs? Because their primary job no longer provides enough income to cover the bills. So they have to take another job. I and mean, maybe a lot of people are working on weekends now. Maybe they don't say, thank God it's Friday, because now they got to work Saturday at some other job and Sunday. And a lot of these jobs are these service sector jobs. They're, you know, hospitality, 
you know, restaurants, hotels, uh, bartenders, right? That's where people are working. So they're probably working Saturdays, Friday night, Saturday night, right? So uh, this is not a good thing. This surge in moonlighting is a sign that the labor market is weak when you need multiple jobs to make ends meet. I also just saw somebody shared this tweet with me and I retweeted it, that we now have a record number of kids, adults, grown kids, not little kids, but adults living with their parents, right? The highest rate ever, you know, in, in American history. Um, why is that? Why are so many grown adults living with their parents? Because they can't afford to live by themselves. And, you know, also, I'm sure that not only do we have a record percent of people living with their parents, but I'm sure a record percent of those people still living with their parents have college degrees and they still can't make enough money uh, to, to, to live in their own place. And one of the reasons is because they got a college loan. They borrowed money to get those worthless degrees and now they're paying interest on the money they borrowed and so they don't have any money to pay the rent. And meanwhile, the rents are going up. So again, this is a, a, a sign of a weak labor market where 30-year-olds can't even earn enough money to rent their own place, even with a roommate. They're stuck living with their parents. Now, I'm sure some of the situation too is grown parents moving back in with their kids. So it's not necessarily just the kids that can't afford to have their own place. It's the parents, too, because their retirement money has been obliterated by inflation, right? And so now what do they have to do? They, you have 60, 70, 80-year-old parents moving in with their 40, 50-year-old kids, right? But this whole consolidation of households represents a declining standard of living, and it shows that the labor market is weak. It's not strong. In fact, I looked at some other statistics because the numbers that they give us, they're seasonally adjusted. So, you know, they monkey around with them. But the unadjusted numbers, this is on September. This is the month where we had 336,000 jobs created, right, that Biden is bragging about. During that same month of this robust job creation, unadjusted, we lost 885,000 full-time jobs in one month. That is a huge number. I'm not sure how they seasonally adjusted their way out of that thing, but that's the raw number. 885,000 jobs lost, full-time jobs. Now, how did they end up getting the 336,000 net positives? Well, we did add 1.127 million part-time jobs during the month of September. That's a lot of jobs. You know, in fact, the drop in full-time jobs, I read that, it was the biggest drop in a month since April of 2020. Now, what was going on in April of 2020? Well, that was like ground zero for COVID. We were shutting down the economy. You have to go back to a COVID lockdown month to find a month where we lost more full-time jobs than in September, yet they're bragging about what a great uh, jobs report we just had. Why do we have a million more part-time jobs? Because there's a million more people who couldn't afford to pay the rent with the job they had. So they needed to get another job, right? It's possible that some of these part-time jobs went to people who are unemployed, but 
Probably not because the unemployment rate went up. So my guess is that almost all of these jobs went to people who already had jobs. So that is not something that Biden should be bragging about, that people need all these jobs. <laughs> they, they, they need purchasing power. They don't, they don't want to have to have three jobs to get the same purchasing power that they used to get with one job. Uh, that, that is not uh, going forwards. That's a huge move backwards. And again, that explains why Biden is so unpopular. You know, you got all these uh, journalists out there, left-wing journalists, scratching their heads. They can't figure this out. The economy is so great. Why is Biden so unpopular? He's so unpopular because the economy is not great, right? Because it's, these numbers are deceiving. They don't tell the real story. But that story is going to continue to unfold uh, politically, which is why I think that the betting markets are still wrong on the, the 2024 uh, election. I went up on predictit.com again, and um, the, Biden is still the favorite to win, or even their, their Democratic Party is the favorite to win over the Republican Party. I mean, I, to me, this seems like th- those markets have got it wrong. And another thing that just happened that I think uh, makes it even less likely that um, Biden's going to get reelected or whoever it is that ends up running is that now Robert Kennedy Jr., who got totally screwed over by uh, the Democratic establishment and the party, who would make a much better president than Biden, right, by far. I mean, not that I think he is my ideal choice for president. There are a lot of things about uh, RFK Jr. that that I like. You know, there's like nothing about Biden that I like. So the fact that there are some things about uh, RFK that I like, you know, that 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 that's a plus. Right. But he's still, you know, a, a, a big government guy, even though he, he he he's good on individual liberty when it comes to, you know, your personal freedom and your freedom of speech and and stuff like that. He doesn't like the, the, the mandatory uh, lockdowns or the vaccines or, you know, this uh, a cancel culture. Um, you know, so there's, there's some, there's some libertarian, uh, aspects to the guy, but, but, uh, you know, the rest of them is very much like, you know, his brothers, you know, he, you know, John Kennedy and, and, and Robert Kennedy, or his, not his uncle, his uncle and his, uh, on his father, right. You know, they're, you know, they're, you know, great society kind of guys, you know, they, they, they believe, you know, the Peace Corps and the welfare and Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security. I mean, all these government programs, I mean, they're still big backers of a big uh, social welfare state. So, I mean, they're not, you know, my cup of tea uh, from an economic uh, standpoint. I mean, he's, you know, he's not Ron Paul or, or anything like that. But, I mean, but there, you know, there, there are things about him that he has in common with Ron Paul. And, and one thing is, I do, I do believe him. I do believe he is sincere and genuine, which I think is important. I, you know, that at least a guy believes what he's saying, right? As opposed to just a typical politician who's just lying. I think the guy is sincere. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but but I get a sense that he's a sincere guy. Um, in any event, he announced that he is going to run as an independent. Uh, and he is going to get some votes as an independent. And he's probably going to poll. Now, the question is, will he poll high enough to get into the debates? Uh, the way Ross Perot did in 1992, 
Ross Perot got into the debates because his poll numbers were high enough. And, you know, he had enough of his own money he was able to spend. But one of the reasons uh, that Ross Perot was able to get popular in 1992 is because uh, George Bush, as a Republican, uh, had some, you know, popularity problems. And people were concerned about the deficits. I mean, little did they know just how big they would get compared to where they were in 1992. But people were still concerned about the debt. And, and that was uh, Ron, uh, uh, Ross Pro's entire campaign was, you know, fixing the debt, right? I'm going to open up the hood of that car and I'm going to get in there and I'm going to fix it, right? But, you know, he resonated with a lot of people and, and he ran. He ended up getting 19% of the vote which was pretty good. I mean, he might have been able to get more had he not done that weird, dirty tricks things. You know, he pulled out and then he, and then he came back in. And I, I, I don't know what happened there, but he, he may have done better. I don't think he was going to win. But he's the main reason that Clinton won. Because if you look at the numbers, I mean, Bill Clinton only got 43% of the vote and he became president, right? 43%. Uh, he beat out Bush, who got 37.5%. I think that, there's a chance that had Ross Perot not been in that race, Bush might have won, right? He might have been uh, reelected uh, to, to a second term. But because uh, the Republican Party was not necessarily happy with Bush, you know, the read my lips, no new tax pledge, you know, that's stuck in a lot of people's craws. Uh, and, and so you had Ross Perot able to exploit that. I believe he drew more votes away from the Republicans than he did from the Democrats. So maybe Clinton would have still won if Ross Perot wasn't in the race. Uh, but to the extent that he was the spoiler, he spoiled it in favor of Clinton. I think the same thing might happen this time. You've got a Repub an incumbent, this time a Democrat, who is very unpopular among Democrats. I mean, you know he's really unpopular among Republicans, but he's unpopular among Democrats too. You get another, you get a guy in there like uh, RFK Jr. who can, you know, feed off of that anger and resentment uh, in the Democratic Party, and he can siphon off enough votes from Biden to make sure that Trump wins. Because right? there are some people that think, well, he's going to draw some people from Trump because for some of the reasons that I've, that I've said, right, that, that, you know, he does have some things in common with Trump. He's also anti-war. He's anti uh, the war in, um, in, in Ukraine, right? So, yeah, I agree that there's going to be some things about um, Kennedy that will also appeal to Trump voters. But I don't think any Trump voters are going to vote for Kennedy over Trump. There's no way. I mean, they're going to vote for Trump over anybody. And even if there's a few things that they like about uh, Kennedy, it's not going to trump what they like about Trump. So Trump's going to keep those votes, even though his voters may be sympathetic to uh, um, Kennedy and certainly like me would prefer Kennedy to Biden. They sure as hell aren't going to vote for him if he's on the same ballot as Trump. So Trump's not going to lose those votes. Now, Maybe are there some independents right in the middle there that were not happy with Trump or Biden? Might some of those guys uh, go for Kennedy? They might. They might. 
But I think that's still going to break more by drawing votes away uh, from the Democrats. After all, the guy's a lifelong Democrat. He's a Kennedy, right? How many Republicans are going to vote for a Kennedy? Not that many. I mean, it's, it'd be difficult, especially if you're an older voter, my age group, right? Hard for you to vote as a Republican to go and vote for a Kennedy. And of course, if you're a Democrat, right? You're an older Democrat. You now got a Kennedy up there on the ballot and you're thinking, hey, that's got to be pretty good. It's got to be better than a Biden, right? Uh, you know, uh, and, and so people who are thinking this is not a big deal, uh, it is a big deal. Again, I thought that uh, Trump was probably going to win anyway. Of course, he hasn't even gotten the nomination yet, but it seems pretty much unstoppable, right? A fait accompli. Uh, you know, the, the more the rest of the Republicans debate, the higher uh, Trump goes in, in the polls. Uh, so it's clear he's going to be the nominee. And um, I think it's more and more likely now that he's going to win uh, if you get a credible third-party candidate. Now, again, if he can get into the debates, that'd be even better. And of course, if I were Trump, I would be every, doing everything I could to try to get him into the debates, right? The Republicans should want him in the debates to draw votes away uh, from, from Biden. Although, I don't know. I mean, in a head-to-head, I mean, Biden's just going to self-destruct. So in a way, you might just want Biden along with Trump because if there's a third guy in there, that takes some of the pressure off of Biden because that's less time he has to talk, right? Because there'll be some questions uh, given to somebody else. Uh, so maybe it's a mixed bag. But I, I, I think any way you look at it, having uh, RFK in there just makes it that much more likely that, that Trump is going to win. Now, again, do I think it's a game changer for the economy, assuming we haven't had a complete meltdown? Have, we haven't had a sovereign debt or currency crisis before the, uh, the election. Does that mean Trump is going to be able to, uh, you know, save the day? No. I mean, he did it once. Kind of surprised me, too, when he was elected the first time in, in, in 2016. I think we were in bad shape, and I think we, 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 we were headed for something pretty bad. But Trump caused a lot of optimism, a lot of false optimism, that we were going to be cutting deficits and cutting government and uh, revitalizing our manufacturing base. And so uh, spirits, uh, uh, entrepreneurship, faith in the economy really picked up on the election of Trump. And it really kind of enabled the Fed to hike interest rates to the degree that it did, given all this enthusiasm. And we did have some tax cuts, which, of course, produced bigger deficits. Uh, but that also, in the short run, was a little bit of a, of a boost. Uh, but you know, now we're paying the price for that because you know, we, we didn't cut government spending. In fact, we increased government spending under Trump. So I don't think if Trump gets in again, it's going to be that kind of honeymoon where all of a sudden everybody expects a boom in manufacturing again and you know somebody to come in and slash government spending and slash the deficits you know there, n- nobody thinks that's going to happen all that's going to happen is we're not going to have biden in there which is which is a positive but it's not going to stop uh this collapse from happening it's not going to have st- you know if it hadn't already happened if we haven't already had a currency crisis and again what's happening now uh in in the middle east with israel and the palestinians and Iran, potentially. This just escalates all the problems. I mean, we can't even afford peace. 
let alone war, right? I said earlier in the podcast that war is expensive, and it is expensive. Uh, but when you're already broke and you can't even afford peace, because we can't, even without a war, we're broke. We're going to have a crisis if we don't fight a war. But if we do, or not even us, just if there's a, a war in a region of the world that is important and sensitive because of the oil. But again, anything that happens over there with Israel, we're going to get dragged into it. We're going to be funding it. It's going to be increasing our deficits, right? More fiscal stimulus, which is inflationary, and that is going to result in bigger deficits and more money printing. All of this just accelerates the problem. Now, of course, it gives the politicians another scapegoat. Oh, it's oh, it's not our fault. I mean, we couldn't help it that this war broke out, right? There's another uh, uh, so- something that they can you know get them off the hook and say, well, it's not our fault, right? Because this thing happened and we couldn't have controlled that. And so just blame it on that. The way they blamed a bunch of stuff on Putin. Remember the Putin price hikes, right? Well, prices are still going up. Is that still Putin's fault? Of course, it was never Putin's fault. It was the Fed's fault. It was the government's fault. By the way, you know, I mentioned that we had the big rise in in gold today, although in the scheme of things, right, it was only up 30 bucks. And in context, you know, we had a big drop and we're still well below 1900. Uh, we're at 1861 as I am uh, you know, talking. We got closer to 1800 even Friday morning. So we've had like a $60 rally from the low on Friday to where we are right now. But we're still down. You know, We're still below 1900. I don't think we're gonna stay below 1900 for long. But what we didn't get was any kind of meaningful rally in, uh, in Bitcoin. And I haven't talked about Bitcoin in a while because it really hasn't been doing much. Uh, and as I'm recording this podcast, it's about 27,600. So it's still below 30,000, which is the average cost uh, that Michael Saylor paid uh, at a micro strategy. You know, he's in around 30, 31,000, you know, for a couple of billion bucks. And, you know, remember when he when Michael uh, Saylor first bought all that Bitcoin a few years ago, the reason was, he said, look, I got my money sitting in the bank earning zero. So what am I going to do with it? I'm, I'm earning zero. So I'm going to take all that cash and I'm going to buy Bitcoin. Well, now, if he still had that cash in the bank, he'd be earning over 5%. Well, not in a bank. He'd have to move it to a money market like everybody else is. But if, if you've got a bunch of cash now and you're a corporation, you can get 5, 5.5% you know, in, a, in a money market. 30-day T-bills are paying 5.5%. Bitcoin's paying zero, right? So now what's he doing? He's losing out. Not only has he lost on Bitcoin going down, but he's losing out on the fact that he's not getting all of this interest income that he could be earning had he not buried all that money in Bitcoin. And of course, he can't sell it because he's got too much, right? He's the big whale uh, in in the fishbowl. And there's no way that he's getting out. So he's still down. You know, what's his name in El Salvador? He's got an even higher average price. He's up there at 40-something thousand for his Bitcoin that he's getting no no interest on. But if you remember early on in the Bitcoin bubble, uh, you know, back in 2017, 2018, 2019, that time period, when there was something that happened around the world somewhere, some crisis, something bad happened, there was a big spike in the Bitcoin. You had that kind of dynamic. Uh, not anymore. I mean, they can't really move the market that significantly because the price of a Bitcoin is too high 
and there's too many people that want to get out. And so you don't have these kind of moves. And again, to me, this is just a sign that it's over, right? Uh, the market is done. Uh, there's a fork in it. People just haven't recognized that yet. And we are at some point going to see the bottom drop out of the Bitcoin market. And also, you know, speaking about, you know, safe haven perceptions of which Bitcoin clearly is not a safe haven, the dollar didn't get much of a bid either. I mean, the dollar index, I think at the high point of the day, I think it was up, you know, like maybe half a percent, 0 0.4, 0 0.5. And it closed barely positive, almost unchanged today. The dollar index went out at, what is it, 106, uh, pretty much even. And dollar index uh, did uh, go down Friday. It surrendered. It, it initially rallied, didn't make a new high. It didn't, it didn't have a reversal day uh, to, the, to the downside, like gold had and silver had to the upside. But it did close negative on the day. So the, the dollar surrendered its early gains on the back of uh, the rise in bond yields. And even though bond yields came down by the close, they still were higher. Yes, the 30-year Treasury uh, closed below 5% but it still closed higher on the day. Bonds lower, price higher. And even though the bonds were closed today for the uh, Columbus Day holiday, uh, the uh, ETFs, you know, they, they were still trading. And so treasury yields did inch a little bit higher today. And again, I think what's happening is negative for bonds because it means bigger budget deficits, higher inflation. That's what's driving the bonds. Remember for a long time, Everybody said deficits don't matter until they matter. And I kept saying, yeah, but when they matter, that's all that matters. And that's what's happening. They matter now. They mattered then, too, because mattering was inevitable. The fact that they didn't care, that's like, you know, jumping off the top of the Empire State Building and say, well, it's not a problem until you hit the ground. Exactly. Because once you jump, hitting the ground is inevitable. The fact that it takes a while to get there, well, I'm not really sure how many seconds it takes. But the fact that you're okay on the 50th floor, you know, you're not okay because once you've jumped, you know, you, you, you've sealed your fate. So once you've gone on the road of deficits don't matter, you sealed your fate that they matter because they eventually do. And the longer you go on with the, under the assumption that it doesn't matter until it matters, the worse it's going to be. And so now it matters. It's all that matters. And that's why it doesn't matter what the Fed does doesn't matter if they stop hiking rates. It's over, right? Inflation genie is out of the bottle. No one's putting it back in. And that's it for the bond market. That's it for the entire phony U.S. economy that we built on a foundation of cheap money, inflation, artificially low interest rates. The whole thing is uh, coming to an end. Anyway, the podcast is also coming to an end. I forgot to remind people last time, and maybe this time it'll help. Don't forget to like and subscribe and comment on this YouTube video. And even if you're not listening to it or watching it on YouTube, if you're uh, listening to it someplace else, go to my YouTube channel, subscribe to that YouTube channel, and like this video. And particularly, I am now 58 minutes into this video. If anybody is still watching this video, and I know they are. There are a lot of people that watch the whole video. Not everybody, some people you know, give up halfway through. But if you are still watching this video, 58 minutes in, you gotta like it. I mean, there's no way you're gonna listen to me talk for 58 minutes 
and not like what I'm saying. Otherwise, you'd do something else with your time, right? You're not an idiot. So everybody who is still watching, you've got no excuse not to like this video. So I want to make sure that we set a record and every single person who stuck it out for now almost 59 minutes, every one of you has to smash that like button and hit a new record for likes for Peter Schiff uh, podcast. Anyway, bye for now. 